Hi, this is Stephanie Hansen with the Makers of Minnesota. And if you're like many of the entrepreneurs that I talk to, social media gives you a pit in your stomach. It's a chore. You don't like it. It's hard to figure out what you're going to post about. I'm telling you, I love it. I love it and I'm good at it and I will help you be good at it too. If you need help with your social media strategy or you just want someone to do it for you, I am your gal. I am taking on some new clients for 2021 and really we need to get prepared because all of a sudden business is going to start humming along again and I would love to help you have new followers and new pairs of eyes on your accounts so that you are ready to take the world by storm. I can do press releases. I can help you have a public relations strategy, or I can just simply help you do social media to get it off your plate so you are not dreading it every day. Feel free to reach out to me at shansen, H-A-N-S-E-N, shansenmarketing at gmail.com and let me know how I can help you up your social media game in 2021. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Makers of Minnesota podcast. I'm Stephanie Hansen, and we talk to cool makers on the podcast doing cool things. And I got introduced to a product a while back, and I, I it's an old product that had been like something that our ancestors had made, and it was Switchel. And I first had it, and someone told me that it was good for like electrolyte replacement and for athletes instead of having to drink that dreaded Gatorade. So I got turned on to it. And just the whole idea of like fermentation is really exciting for me. So I'm here today with Jeff Cerisi, and he is the founder of Hobby Farmer Foods. And Jeff, like, how did you start the whole vinegar fermentation business? Because you've got tons of products. Yeah, it's, it's, well, First of all, I'm a co-founder. I've got two other partners, Todd Novinska and Chuck Hermes, our partners in this. And Todd and I started pickling back in 2008, a long time ago, just to keep some family recipes alive. We started out with pickles and we kept selling out year after year at local craft fairs. And uh, we decided to incorporate after about five or six years of that. And then we just kind of went dormant for a few years and the uh, Keg and Case Marketplace came calling as soon as I posted something about our Switchel, which was a beverage that I've been drinking and brewing since the mid 70s. My mom turned me on to it back then. She was like a hippie housewife and doing yoga and drinking apple cider vinegar and honey drinks in the 70s. I was a budding young rock singer at the time, always had throat problems, hoarse, couldn't talk after rehearsal, stretching for notes, you know, that I shouldn't be trying to sing. And that's how I started drinking it. And I drank it for 15 years on the road as a musician. And as Todd and I kind of moved into, you know, moving this into more of a retail environment, we realized that we had nothing to make in the winter. And I said, oh, let's do this switch. I posted it, keg in case the curator's found it that way. They brought us over to the building. Next thing you know, we're opening up a retail store. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of how we got our start. And much to our surprise, the Switchel started just cruising off the shelves, outselling all of our pickles that were very popular at the time, two to one, three to one. And we knew we were onto something. So it's just kind of grown from there. Recently, last Christmas, the week of Christmas, I was down brewing our first pilot run of hard switchel 
which uh, won a good food award in San Francisco last Friday. And we just picked up a distribution deal this week and we're just cruising. It's fun. Can you give the listener, what is Switchell? Switchell is an old drink, like you said. It dates back to the 1700s. It's made from, well, ours is made from organic uh, apple cider vinegar, organic ginger juice, and organic honey. And we blend it with crystal clear Minnesota water in perfect proportions. And we carbonate it and bottle it. Like you said, it gives you electrolytes, energy, takes away pain and inflammation when drank regularly because of the ginger and the ACV that's in there. It's a prebiotic. So it feeds the good bacteria that already exist in your gut biome. Unlike kombucha, it doesn't have a mother or uh, uh, the the bacteria in it that ferments in the bottle. It's been known to uh, help in weight loss because it's a liver and a kidney cleanse. It reduces blood sugar. There's just a laundry list of health benefits with Switchel. And we're really happy with how people have found how versatile it is. So we're making mocktails with it. We're making cocktails and we're using it in cooking and marinades and sauces. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's a cool product. So how does Switchel become hard Switchel or alcoholic Switchel? Well, what we did, we wanted to remain gluten-free. That's another point that I didn't mention. Our Switchel is gluten-free. So a lot of RTDs now are using grain alcohols or adding vodka to remain gluten-free, we had to figure out how to how to get that, that fermentation and that alcohol content done without fermenting something that had a grain in it. So we're fermenting dextrose and we're using a champagne yeast and an accelerator. And it's basically, we're, we're making a crystal clear seltzer off to the side and we're making a full flavored Switchel flavor batch like we would for NA. Instead of the water, we have the seltzer again. We've proportioned it in a way where we've got full flavored switchel and not like a watered down seltzer. I consider seltzers Mm -hmm. to be a lighter tasting drink that has hints of fruit and essence in it. And I wanted our switchel to just be punchy and bold and taste like our regular switchel. So that's why our tagline is not a beer, not a seltzer, not a cider, hard switchel. I love it. It totally worked for me. When I saw that you'd won a good food award, I was so excited for you guys. Thank you. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a unique product. It is. We've created a whole new beverage category. I'm working with the state of Minnesota right now on that to try to figure out how to, you know, what do we categorize this as for the excise tax and for all these future licenses that we need to brew it, sell it, get it across state lines you know, because we got orders coming in now from Southern California and Utah um, based on the good food mercantile. And uh, so we have a, a task in front of us that uh, includes a lot of licensing and and getting things in place before we can do that. What is the status right now of keg and case market? Because it kind of during the pandemic fell under some interesting licensing that prevented it from being open like a market. It was more treated like a food hall. Mm -hmm. Can you just get us up to speed on where that's at now? And your podcast will probably run at the end of March because I'm recording a little bit early. So hopefully by end of March, April, we'll start to be able to see some more outdoor things get open, right? Right. Well, you're exactly right. 
uh, Kagan case was designated a food hall. Therefore, it was not deemed essential like grocery stores and certain restaurants. So uh, they shut us down in November and we are still closed. The plan, you know, when they started to allow restaurants to, to reopen at limited capacity, the plan that we came up with, and I think it's a smart plan, was to kind of reopen with a grand opening in the spring when we can again utilize our whole campus, our outdoor grassy area, the park we call it, the patio, the parking lot. Last year when we were closed in the building, we opened that up very successfully. No one got sick. We had a beer garden, we had food trucks, and then everybody that was inside the market that wanted to sell outside was able to set up a food truck or a outdoor stand. And it just, it, it was great. People came with their lawn chairs to listen to music on Friday and Saturday. There was a, enough room where people could social distance and be safe about it. So that's the plan this year. We're going we're gonna to do a grand reopening in the spring. Outside is going to be an important aspect of it. But we're hoping that by spring, the, the limits uh, having people indoors is going to increase or at least make it easier to sell out of our stores as well. And it just made more sense to do that than open up half capacity, quarter capacity right now through the winter. And you never know what's going to happen. These restaurants, I think, are more susceptible to that ruling than we are as a, you know, we're selling canned goods and we're selling bottles that are sealed. They didn't want to get all that perishable food in their freezers and then have a governor's order shut them down again and have to give away tens of thousands of dollars of food. Yep. So pandemic wise, have you guys just been kind of other than having this location that you need to take care of? Are you just clicking along on all cylinders and selling online? And Yeah, I mean, we, we tried to look at this as an opportunity to develop some things that we've been putting on the back burner. We were too busy to worry about e-commerce because the store was killing it. And we were doing good at festivals and events. And so what this pandemic did was it just kind of made us circle back to e-commerce. We launched an online store. We're now shipping to all 50 states. And that's going great. It picked up speed over the holidays. We shipped gift boxes, and now we've got some really good containers for our bottled uh, switchel, uh, so we can ship anywhere with that. So that was a big plus. And then it allowed me to do some R&D on this hard switchel and get that kind of uh, through the pilot run and test it out with some crowds with our crawlers this summer, which we did. And uh, we got into a situation where we were able to brew it and enter it into some contests. And I I think uh, being nimble and being that we're hobby farmers, and I mean that literally, we all, all three owners still have other jobs that we're tending to, allowed us to not have that pressure of, of having the store be so successful through this whole period where we could kind of furlough our workers. We kept on about three of our employees Uh, We got our PPP money to do that. And we just turned our attention towards some things that we could do to uh, keep keep the tills ringing. There's something ringing. It must be your very busy phone. My phone, yeah. I turned it off. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Those are orders just coming in. Um, When you think about, you're kind of a late entry into the maker movement. You're you're someone that's been around a little bit. 
what does, how has it changed since being at festivals and now being completely online? Because I know a lot of makers really love the talking to customers and the research and development and. Absolutely. Well, that's the other thing I should touch on too. Um, Apart from launching e-commerce and and making that a success, we really leaned heavily on the other retail partners that we had established over the past two years. And, And they started ordering like crazy because they were seeing an increase in their traffic. So places like Rose and Loon, Longfellow Market, which is a grocery store deemed essential, those were all open during the holidays. Uh, we added our products up into Toby's on the way to Duluth and Duluth Grill, a Corktown Deli and Brews is now carrying our pickles, beets, maple syrup, everything. Uh, anybody that was deemed essential started ordering more and more of our products. And then we were able to add some new ones. We're talking to Homespun. Uh, we've recently been added at Min Makers in Excelsior at their store. So those places are like, our store now. I mean, we're shipping regularly. And the big surprise was You Betcha Box. Um, our friends, uh, Katie and Mary at You Betcha Box, we've been working with them for a couple of years. They ramped up this year in a big way and uh, they've turned into our number two uh, retailer now outside of our store. Very good. That's quickly. excellent. Yeah, they're selling a lot of boxes. Yeah, that's excellent. And uh, they've done a good job of trying to figure out what the mix is and how to package that. Do you think like the box thing really kind of came on in the last year? Mm -hmm. I think probably due to the pandemic and people not being able to get out and about and shop. But I think people have really liked the box phenomenon too. And I feel like it probably will stick around. What do you think? I think so too. I think there's some good things that are come up that are going to come out of this for people that are doing e-commerce and just packaging up a nice little gift box. It's a great thing to send to to grandma or somebody else that's isolated that just can't come to Minneapolis and shop and come to St. Paul and go to the Kagan case. It's it's a great thing. I remember, you know, not too long ago where Harry and David was my go-to. I would just like be yeah. so busy. I would just go to their website and I would knock off like eight people on my list. Boom, boom, Absolutely. boom. And they loved it. Fruit of the month club or just one single gift for the holidays. They were just great. So it's Everybody great to see likes that. Yeah. yeah. And food, you know, you can get a little inundated sometimes at holiday time because you end up with all of this food, but I just, I love getting packaged food and I just put it in my cupboard and I look and I'm like, okay, what am I going to make this week? And I don't know. I just really, I'm a big food person. So probably no surprise there in terms of marketing, you know, you've won this good food award. How do you find your customers? Is social media a big part of it? Or is it really the evangelizing of the retailer? Well, you're you're right. We in the store, we were great at getting people in to sample it and talk about it. Uh, that is one element that really kind of hurts not being there telling people about it because they love the story of Switchell and how we kind of started. Now, you know, we can't do that sampling. So the Instagram and Facebook, social media, those portals have been really working well for us. I've created a new series called Mocktails and Cocktails on Instagram TV that has been basically set up to give people ideas on how to create exciting mocktails and cocktails at home using our products. 
using our products with other makers from Minnesota or around the country so that we kind of cross-pollinate both products and our audiences. And we've done like nine shows on there. And I don't call them shows. I shouldn't call them that. We're trying to keep it two minutes or under. I know people are busy and we want to get to the point really quick and have them mixing within 10 minutes and, and getting excited about what we've just done. It's That's really good for us. Yeah, it's kind of crazy what you can do with an iPhone, huh? Exactly. And so we're doing that and we're boosting our posts, um, bought into some uh, other templates that allow us to use music and and uh, uh, motion graphics and all kinds of stuff. So we're kind of up in our game a little bit where Instagram and Facebook is concerned. We're working with uh, somebody that's going to be taking that over a little bit this year now. And uh, we're also talking to a marketing guy that I've known for years that has worked for Miller Brewing and Coca-Cola and uh, a bunch of different major brands. And we're going to probably do a national PR push later in the year after we get our distribution set up. Mm -hmm. Uh, So those are some of the things that we've been doing. Uh, Word of mouth is great too. A lot of people share those IGTV uh, videos we've been putting out. And so it just is growing from there. And we've got a regular newsletter. Uh, Those are about the, you know, that and the the PR that we send out ourselves. What made you decide to get help for social media? Like what was the tipping point for you as a maker? Well, although I enjoy doing it, I've been in marketing for 31 years and, and that's kind of my other business that I do. Uh, But I, I wear many hats in this, in this business And that's one thing that I think I can uh, train somebody in and let go of and not be so involved on 100% of the posts and, and things that we need to do there. And it's just time, you know, it's time to start delegating. And, and someone just asked me, they reached out to me and and they said, um, we're thinking about hiring a social media person. Like what should we budget for that? Do we need a part-time person? Do we need a full-time person? What would your experience be? Like, is there a threshold of like, once you're over a $500,000 business or a million dollar business, like at what point do you feel like, cause that you can delegate that? Because I think a lot of these makers want to delegate it cause they don't like it. It's just totally time consuming, but they don't feel like they can, that it's not a good way, a good investment, I guess. Help me wade through with your marketing background people listening to this podcast, when they should start to look at making those choices? Well, yeah, you've got to first get a nice little uh, group of people in all range of experience, I think. You know, places in Minneapolis like Socialites, and there's there's very well-organized companies that do this, uh, but you got to be at a certain level for that and have a certain monthly and annual budget for that. Um, down from that, you have to look at people that are kind of doing it on a uh, a la carte basis with other makers and just see what you like and see what might be a good fit creatively. Uh, you can always kind of steer them towards the, you know, your brand, your branding, your content that you want out there. Uh, but, but see how many likes they get. See how they're boosting their posts. Uh, that's the main thing. You want to get this across to an audience that is relevant to your product. And so you really have to question them on where they're going, who, who, how they're finding their audience, what algorithms they're using, what search 
engine optimization keywords they're using on Facebook and and the web. Those are more of a mid-level thing where you're going to expect to pay, you know, a pretty nice price per post. There's influencers too that come at all levels. So look at that too, as you well know. I mean, some people have thousands of followers, but they charge for their services. So maybe budget one or two of those a year with somebody that really has a good audience, in addition to maybe a lower level everyday Instagram feed uh, company or or a freelancer that does that. And then there's uh, other people that are just out of work and kind of hungry to do something. And you might be able to strike a deal with somebody that looking to add to their portfolio. And so it's doing two things. It's giving them some value because they're trying to grow a business and it's giving you value because they're going to give you a good deal on this. And that might be a good fit for people that are at our level, just handing it off you know, we really have a, a nice little thing going, but we don't want to jump to the top level quite yet. We want to maybe take a, a step up and see how that works with boosted posting. That's the other thing we're doing with this yes, new sir. guy. We're going to boost everything this year. We're going to pay, get a, get an advertising budget for boosting on Instagram and Facebook and see if that kind of helps broaden the spectrum for us. So if you're going to make that leap to the level like where you're at to start, not necessarily a socialites or an agency, is it $1,000 a month? Is it $500 a month? And do you feel like you need to boost if you're going to do it? Well, if you're going to pay that much and you're going to pay the higher rates for people to do this, uh, then I, I think that it's up to them and it should be part of the package that they're boosting it, that they're doing the research They've got the uh, the impressions uh, that they can deliver what they promise. And so it's up to them to do the boost. Yeah, because some people never boost. Right, right. They just rely on their their following to, to do things for them. And, you know, that's very common. Uh, the boosting we've tried and, and we've done enough research where we think that this is going to be the next best thing for us to jump to that level this year. And... Uh, I think it's going to be the most costly. And I think you have a national. Yeah. And with the national presence, with the good food award, I think that probably makes total sense. Right. I've talked to some influencers um, in, in Canada that wanted $400 a post. And I looked at their impressions and how many likes they were getting. And it was between 800 and 1200 per post. And I felt like you know, that's not good value for us at this point. And, and I also did the research too on the other products that she was promoting. And we were going to be like the second food product. So, I mean, these are things you have to look at. Where's their expertise? And hers was more on a fashion slant. It was shoes, it was accessories and clothing. And she wanted to get into the food and there's a, there's a perfect opportunity to say, hey, you know, your portfolio doesn't have a lot of food. If you want to build in that area, 400's a bit much per post. You know, maybe 400 a month would work better for us. And you can do one post a week or two a week or negotiate something that works mm-hmm. for your budget and it works for them because then they've got two food products now all of a sudden that they can try to go out and get more people. Like I think you, one thing that, really has worked for me and that makes me feel the best. If I'm going to do influencer work for a company, 
I really don't just want to post once. Like I want to learn about your products. I want to know about you, the person. I want to feel really good when I am putting my name, my words, my emphasis behind a product. Mm -hmm. And that's really how I can sell it. I can put a picture out there and get a lot of likes on it, but I want to actually get people to go to your website to actually buy this product. And then they'll like, be like, oh my gosh, and here's the cocktail I made. And then I can be like, oh, I never even thought of that. And we have a dialogue and an engagement about the product that I'm sharing. I, and, and maybe I'm just different. I don't know. I only like to work with clients that I feel like I can actually move the needle for them because I feel bad if I can't. Yeah. And it, that is how it should be. A lot of people are just there to rack up 10 new clients and, and just crank stuff out and let it, let the chips fall where they may. I really like, that's refreshing to hear that you really want to move the needle and figure out how to do that for your clients because it's so important. And we're all so vulnerable here at this stage. Yeah. And a lot of these like influencers can be just like machines, right? Because their friends all like their posts. They like all their friends posts. And again, all of these likes don't necessarily translate to someone going and placing an order. And that's what you're hoping to get. And it is weird because it's sort of an esoteric thing. It may not happen that first time you post, but as you start to talk about using a product and how you utilize it in your life and people start to see themselves in you, Mm-hmm. that's the pull through. That's the magic. And that's sometimes right. it takes more than, you know, one post to get there. So I would encourage people. I I kind of have shifted my thinking on influencers to really look at like, can someone be an ambassador for your product? And how long of a relationship does that take? Is it a 90 day relationship? Is it a six month relationship? You know, and really just invest in that relationship with the person and see where they can bring you. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Brand ambassadors, that's such a great buzzword right now, too. And there's so many people that are willing to do whatever it takes to kind of get your name out there in the market. And that just shows that people are really passionate about it. Yeah. And I think if you're a brand ambassador, it's you're thinking about this brand that you work with in lots of holistic ways. Like for me, I'm thinking about are there markets I'm involved in that they could participate in? Is the podcast something that might be a fit for them? Does Do I have any scope of influence in this influencer world? Like I'm always just sort of thinking about them and how I'm going to help them amplify their product. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, I have the delight of working with a lot of just small family owned businesses and I was one myself. So it gives me a lot of joy. So I I would just encourage people, if you're getting that feeling of wanting to reach out to from a social standpoint, maybe think about it more as someone that's going to grow with you than just, you know, will you post for me this one time? Because I just don't know that that really does for people. Yeah, it's it's tough. You've got to look at it as a commitment and give it and you got to give it some time because you can't move the needle with one post. You've got to have that summer to work with somebody to see if you look back and go, what worked, what didn't work? Let's look at what kinds of posts we did over that period of time. And oh, wow, this one got that many impressions and this one got this few. We're not doing any of those anymore. We're going to go with the healthy message that we're going to do, you know, with keep doing with what works. That's how you start getting trends. Can I ask you a weird pickling question since I feel like you're so good at it? (laughs) How do you make your pickles cookie? 
Is it the process or is it the fruit? It's both. Now, our pickles used to be way crispier. We uh, Before we had the store and we were selling them as fresh packed, we would refrigerate them after they were uh, brined and we would bring them to the sales in coolers and sell them cold. So they always were cold. We've never used alum to retain crispy, crispiness in our pickles, so I should add that. Our challenge was to pasteurize our product to make them shelf-stable and try to retain that crispiness. How we've done that is we really are careful about the cucumbers that we get. And so if it's good spear material, we're we're putting it all into spears. We, We designate our chipping material that way. The bigger stuff, we either reject it or we've been thinking about doing relish now too because... A lot of times in the winter, we get these bigger cucumbers that are seedy, and they're just a little bit meaty and mushy right from the start, and we know that's not going to make a good pickle in the jar. So that's how we do it. We uh, we basically have a, a great recipe that I think doesn't have anything that softens it as well, and then we keep our inventory fresh. So we're we're putting our inventory on the shelf that we produced about a month or two ago, and that's the time to sell it. And that gets probably bought out within another month or two. And so we're continually adding fresh product to the shelves. You can tell when it looks old. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Are people making cucumbers in an aquaponic environment or hydroponic environment yet? Oh, good question. I was just having this conversation with somebody last week. Because I know that um, some of my clients in advertising, uh, Fred Haberman, they've got sure. something going over at the Hams Brewery. Yeah, um, Freak Flag Organics. Yeah, and there, there's also a couple other things where they're growing herbs and uh, hydroponically. But I have not heard of anybody that's doing cucumbers hydroponically. If they did, we'd be all over it. That would be perfect uh, solution to our Minnesota packing in the winter problem. It may be worth reaching out to the folks at Revel Greens. They started Bushel Boy Tomatoes and sold it and then have launched Revel. I feel like they are extremely good at this uh, climate. I feel like they're very good at understanding how to do this. Revel? Another client. Revel, R-E-V is in Victor O-L. Oh, I haven't heard of those guys. Cool. Um, another one that might be interesting is Superior Fresh, and they're in Hickston, Wisconsin. And they have a large footprint there, and they're doing um, fruit, or excuse me, lettuce, and then they also have the salmon. So they're doing a closed loop. And sure. I'll just, it seems like this is something that could happen if, you know, you just get the right inventors behind it. Exactly. And I think over at that old Hams Brewery, I think they're doing a closed loop with tilapia. Yeah, so, and they have that pen air system. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So, yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for those tips. I will All definitely right. reach out to them. Yeah, well, it's great to talk to you, Jeff. Thanks for being my guest today. I know we have it took a while to connect, but it was super fun to talk to you. Congratulations on the Good Food Award. Hard switchel, I'm here for it. I'm going to try it. Thanks, Steph. I will contact you and we'll get you a sample over ASAP. It'd be awesome. And I'm also going to watch your mocktail and cocktail videos because they sound fun. Oh, check it out. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye.